We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I wish you a good morning, one and all. Thank you for coming this morning. Wonderful that we can be together again to worship God in spirit and truth as we were taught. We're in Proverbs again. You take your Bible and turn to the end of the book, Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Proverbs 31, and now verse number 2. I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and read along. Why do I do that? Well, I suppose if you're keenly paying attention to what I'm saying, that's great, but I like to have it come in your ears and your eyes because you learn more that way, the more senses that are involved. And it says in verse 2, What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. This advice, by the way, about drinking, uh, we need to spend a little more time than I can this morning speaking about that, but was uh, Lemuel here, probably Solomon, was he uh, a man who was depressed or perishing or any of these kinds of problems? No, not at all. So those instructions did not apply. Verse number 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and hold in her hands Her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, And beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Well, that's great teaching right there. Very good teaching. 
We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 at the end of the chapter and also in chapter 12. The uh, movement of the text of Scripture here is interesting because it moves from a very broad perspective uh, in the world. Whoops. Um, a broad perspective in world history to now we're going to narrow in to a specific clan and man who is going to become significant for the next about 13 chapters of the book of Genesis and then his family is the focus of the book for the rest of uh, all the 50 chapters that are in it. And uh, I'll have to decide how far I'm going to go into uh, Genesis, if we'll take the whole thing in one series here or maybe split it into two or something like that. But that'll be for later. So we've reached now the account of Abraham. I'm going to call him probably inter interchangeably Abraham and Abram because of you recall of his name change. But he's Abram here, known that way, in the center of attention through chapter number 25. We left off last time at verse number 27 of the prior chapter of chapter 11. So let's, let's begin there, and what I'll do is I'll read that in just a moment. Let me have a word of prayer, though, briefly. Father, with the particular text that we see here today, there are a number of challenges that might uh, cause us to uh, check out mentally, and I pray that that will not be the case this morning. Pray that you'll help us to uh, just in, enjoy the history, to be reminded of the significance of uh, Abram and his clan, not only for world history, but also for our own redemption. May we keep that in mind as we go through here. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, it says, This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his, son's Ab his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house, to a land I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Now then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south, or the Negev, as it's called, N-E-G-E-V, or N-E-G-E-B. Verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass... When he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but will let you live. Please say, You are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. 
princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? So Terah had three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and we'll focus on Abram later on in the notes here. Nahor married Milcah. Verse 29 tells us in chapter 11, And uh, Genesis 22, giving some more records, tells us that they had eight children. One of those was named Bethuel, a cousin to Abraham's Abraham's son Isaac. Bethuel's daughter was Rebekah, who would eventually become the wife of Isaac. That's according to Genesis 24, most of, of that chapter. So... Did you catch how the family relationship is there? So Isaac's cousin's daughter, he married. Okay, so I'm going to deal with this topic just briefly. The Bible records this history and makes no comment here as to the advisability of cousin marriage. Earlier in human history, to marry a first cousin or first cousin once removed, as in this case, was not a problem legally nor genetically because of the relative purity of the genetic pool. Today, cousin cousin marriage is prohibited by Catholics, although a special dispensation to allow it is possible in some cases, they think, or I should say they practice. About half of the United States, that is the states, also disallow cousin marriage as a legal protection for the general welfare of society because of the higher incidence of birth defects from such unions. 19 of the states, however, do not prohibit cousin marriage. 44 of the states allow first cousin once removed marriage. Did you know that? I didn't realize these things. I was studying this this week again and uh, just kind of glossed over it because I thought, well, of course the laws prohibit cousin marriage, uh, but actually that was incorrect. Um, so 44 states allow first cousin once removed marriage, such, such as in the case uh, here, in this case. Leviticus 18 talks about the prohibition of close um, relative marriage, but it does not prohibit cousin marriage. I wasn't uh, uh, up to speed on that either myself, so very interesting. According to one source I found, it says the U.S. is the only nation with legal restrictions against first cousin marriages. Now, I'm not advocating for that practice. I'm simply reporting the facts that I have found. Now, there is a one-generation gap between Isaac and Rebekah, but that's not a problem when you remember that Abraham did not have Isaac until way late in his life. So, really, Isaac and Rebekah would be of much closer age than you would think just by looking at the family tree and saying, oh, there's a, you know, a generational gap between them. In fact, there is not an age gap of any great significance uh, between them, uh, although we might consider the age gap significant today, but they certainly did not. Um, so Isaac is much closer in age to his next generation cousin than to his first cousin. Now, Haran, one of these men, Terah's sons, had um, another son named Lot, and we pronounce it Lot, but it's probably Lot, uh, longer O sound. But regardless, he he died while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees with his father. Now, that's easy to read, but is that easy to have happen to you? Think. Think. Here's a man whose son died young, and he he lost his son in his home country, his hometown. He had the grief of losing 
one of his sons. What a deep sadness that must have entailed for him. When we read the Bible, we can kind of just read it, you know? It's like, oh, well, whatever. But think. Think if you lost a son. Terah lost his son. After that, Lot tagged along with Uncle Abram. You know, it's part of this a household. This is a clan thing. It's not, you know, every man for himself, you know, utter mobility like we have today. Children scatter across the United States and people hardly think much of it and all of that. This was a, this was a blow to their family and a much different situation than they had envisioned. Abram's wife was Sarai. They were not able to have children for many years. Uh, it appears that Nahor married his niece from his brother Haran. That marriage was even a smaller degree of separation than the cousin marriage. Although I will say this, because there was another Nahor, the prior generation, that is the grandfather or the father of Terah, we don't know for sure, at least I don't, uh, how the names uh, fell out of the family tree there. It could have been that this is somebody else from a more remote uh, part of the family tree. But in any case, the history is recorded here for us. The Bible says in verses 31 to 32 that Terah moved his family from Ur of the Chaldees or Ur of the Chaldeans to a city called Haran. Now, we mentioned last time that uh, Ur is on the Euphrates River, roughly just northwest of the Arabian Sea. Um, in modern-day Iraq, uh, it was a wealthy Sumerian city south of Babylon, and their destination was this city called Haran, uh, perhaps named by Terah after his son, who had died as a young man in their home country. Um, but basically, Haran was northwest along the Euphrates, about 600 miles away from where they lived. Now, that's a long that's a, that's a big move for anybody even today. Certainly back then, without the help of a U-Haul, that was a, a very big move. Now, if you look at the map, you'll notice that what they did from going in, in, in uh, you know, kind of southern Iraq, if you will, they had to go up to Haran, and then eventually Abram, Abram came back down south to Israel. Why did he do that? Because they had to avoid the direct uh, westerly trip across the desert. They don't, you, you would not make that trip across the desert unless you were very well supplied and had water and uh, were very experienced, I'm sure. So that was not something to take lightly. So they, many times people would travel up along the river and uh, those routes that were more well supplied and easier to make, even though they were much longer perhaps well, in any case, they moved. Apparently, Terah intended to take his family to the land of Canaan. Uh, look at verse number 31. It says, they, they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Well, apparently, the call of God in Abram's life in Genesis 12 happened earlier than uh, Haran, and induced the whole clan to begin to move in the direction of the promised land. But they did not make it all the way to the promised land. They lived for a while at a stopover point in the city we called Haran. So Terah then reached the age of 205 years and died in that city. Now, I don't know why they stopped. The Bible doesn't tell us. There may be a completely innocent and logical reason why they did so. Uh, you know, once people reach about 150 years old, travel gets to be a little difficult. <laughs> 150, maybe half of that today, less than half of that today. Oh, so we don't know, but I don't think we have to, you know, build up some major problem like they were being disobedient or, or you know, sinning somehow by not completing the journey we could wish that they had, but we don't know the circumstances, so we're just going to leave it where the narrative leaves it. Genesis tells us that, that Abram left Haran and departed to go to Canaan, a goal that he finally thus achieved. And we see that he was called, we read that in the next verses in chapter 12, but let me just comment on an observation. This took years for him to do. 
I mean, he didn't just up one day and hop on a plane and move to the promised land. He has dozens of household people, family members, servants. At one point, we know that he has over 300 members in his household. He has animals. He has massive amounts of stuff to carry. There are tents and housing and cooking wear and all of these things. I mean, this is not just some little thing. So it may have taken him a while to do it. God was not in a grand hurry. But even if it takes you a while to complete a project of obedience, I'll call it, it is eminently worthwhile to do that. I mean, just think of it. Just think, for example, with me of Moses. He was 40 when he left Egypt. For another 40 years, he was in obscurity in the desert tending sheep. God was teaching him some things back there, wasn't he? A long time, and maybe he wondered at year 20 or 25 or 30, what am I doing here while my people are suffering? Another generation has come and another generation has gone, and I'm supposed to be the deliverer for the people of Israel, and I'm back here with Jethro and, you know, building a a life here, caring for sheep in this, you know, seemingly God-forsaken desert over here. Forty years. Long time. The Apostle Paul. Think of the Apostle Paul with me for a moment. He was saved, and how many years after that did he become prominent in Christian ministry? Does anybody remember? People talk about the three years that he... Uh, was a student of the Lord in Arabia after the Damascus incident. There are 11 silent years, either inclusive of those 11 or perhaps not, so it may be 14 years. Here's a man who's expert in the laws of Moses in all of the Old Testament, and God sets him aside to prepare him for his ministry for 14 years. We think 14 years. (laughs) My life is half over in 14 years from now. You know, that's too long. Four years of college, that sounds like an eternity when you're 15 or 16. Um, It's not that long. Four years flies by, doesn't it? All of us who who have more years behind us know that. Uh, Time moves differently than what you think when you have less of a perspective on it. But uh, you have many examples like this in Scripture. God works, as our dear friend uh, Perry Reddy would say, the mill of God grinds slowly, but it grinds surely. It accomplishes its purpose. God's work does its purpose. It may take years for you to see the results of God's work in your life, but don't give up. Like Like the drudgery that... Uh, the scripture or the uh, devotional talks about and the scripture encouragement in that, that we work and it's sometimes life is a drudgery. They, they give the example there of, uh, of Schofield. You know how, how hard it is to write a study Bible? You know how hard it is to write notes on like every passage of the New Testament? It's a lot of hours hidden away in an office with a Bible and commentaries and a computer in this age, not back then. And uh, you know, it doesn't seem so glorious when you're in the midst of hammering it out. But when you, yeah, right, every word in the English language for a dictionary, I mean, you've got to be saying, this is crazy. I've got to quit. I'm, you know, this is going to kill me. Yeah. The perseverance, though, that resulted in a great result, uh, we're grateful for that. God keeps working with us. It's eminently worthwhile to obey God, even if it takes a lifetime to do it. Even if it takes a lifetime. Let's, let's be about that. God's call to Abram then in Roman numeral 2 in my notes is in verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, and so the, the, the text is trying to help you put together in your mind that now we're focusing on Abram, but it was some years earlier that God had called him and, and communicated to him, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And then he gives a sevenfold promise to Abram. It's how I've divided it up. It's often divided that way. Sometimes you can look at it as a, 
kind of a first promise with a hinge and then a second one, one having to do with Abram himself and then one having to do with the world. But I'll break it into seven pieces just to follow the, se- the seven I wills or the understood I wills here. The message that God gave to Abram is what is called a unilateral covenant or grant. Uh, I, I used to always follow the uh, terminology of calling it unconditional. And it is, in a sense, unconditional because there is no condition by which God will suspend or, or um, uh, abrogate the Abrahamic covenant. It will come to pass. But there are conditions that were laid upon Abram and his descendants for the enjoyment of the blessing of that covenant. Okay, So uh, that's why I'll call it a unilateral covenant or grant kind of covenant. He promised to give Abram certain things without any conditions attached to the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. And this is what we call the commencement of the dispensation of promise. While God did not abandon his previous dispensational arrangement of human government, he made a new arrangement here for the beginning of the nation of Israel, which was to be the focus of God's work for the remainder of the Old Testament. So if any of you are interested in that topic of how God is working at a high level, I'd love to talk to you about that more. I'll just say for now that he arranged the dispensation of government to begin in Genesis 9 with the revelation about capital punishment and human governance that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And that arrangement did not stop in Genesis 12. It continues on. So if you think of God's program in the world as being like you know, seven dispensations, uh, you know, if you think about them as seven boxes that are in, un, not interacting with each other, that's not the right way to think about it. Seven segments of history, that's not the right way to really think about it either, although time is often imported into the definition of, of these arrangements that God has made. But some of the arrangements or features of the arrangements continue on, continue on. The, the human government arrangement has not ceased, has it? We still have human government, we still have capital punishment, we still have all the stuff that governments are made of in this world. And so we can't think of it as kind of a, you know, hermetically sealed compartments, perhaps stair steps, one building on the other, leading to a climax. What is the climax in world history? When Christ comes and he reigns on this earth, you know he's coming back, right? That's why you have to get right with him because he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to be your judge. And it is, it is more than imperative. How can I say it? It is triply imperative for you to come to know Christ and to be a follower of him because you're going to see him in judgment. God gave us a guarantee of that. How? By raising him up from the dead after he died to pay for our sins, the sins that he's going to judge us for if we don't receive him and have him take those sins away from us. Are you with me? Everybody with me? If Jesus is not coming back, forget it. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, forget it. You know, we ought to be the first ones to hang it up and go on somewhere, do something else with our time on Sunday mornings. But we don't because he is risen from the dead and he is coming back again. And I just trust that when you see him, he will say, I know you and you will say, I know him. So essential for us to know Christ and to have our sins forgiven. Um, so we come back to the text. Uh, the first part of what God said here consists of a command for Abram to move to the land that God would show him. Again, as I've described the move there, can you imagine God telling you, I want you to move from here to what's... Uh, 1,500 miles away, or 900 miles away, okay? I want you to move to Alaska, did you say? Yeah, you had to pick the coldest place. Uh, Florida, you like that, right? Yeah, 1,100 miles away uh, by, by uh, airplane uh, down to South Florida. Uh, God tells you to do that. Now, I, he's not going to 
call to you in an audible voice and say, move. You might wish he said move to Florida, but I'm sure you would not want him to say move to Alaska. Uh, Kalamazoo. That's, that's it's too close for this illustration. Um, that's what he did, and this is a major thing in, in Abram's life. You know, he's leaving behind a place of idolatry, uh, of uh, this, you know, the Ur-Ziggurat, worshiping the moon god, and away from there to a new place to establish a new life and a new worship of the true and the living God. Abram knew the general area to which God was directing him, namely the land of Canaan. I mean, at least he knew to go, you know, west, not east, or north, not south kind of a thing. But uh, he didn't know any more of the specifics, and it was only later that he was given more details on the exact dimensions of the property that God was deeding to him and to his people. I say that carefully because God did deed it to his people, and it does belong to them. Where did they get it? Well, they got it from God. Because you know what? The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. He can give any piece of property to any person that he wants to because it's his to give. We're just renters or um, what? Pilgrims. Yeah, that's right. We're stewards of the properties that God has given to us, but we're not the ultimate owners of them. So Hebrews uh, tells us in 11.8 that Abram obediently left his home country in faith by faith, he did this. And Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness, that uh, he was justified. But his first exercise of faith was before Genesis 15. He exercised faith here in Genesis end of 11 and 12 to actually get up and follow what God told him to do. That is how faith is evidenced, isn't it? It's not just I talk faith. It's that I walk faith, okay? So that's how we, he, we know that he, he was demonstrating his faith, that he had faith because he demonstrated it. So God makes to Abram several promises here after he tells him to go to this land, which we know is the promised land, the age of promise, dispensation of promise. And um, so these promises are made to Abram personally and also nationally, and in fact, internationally. Look at them with me in turn. He says in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. Now, this didn't seem to be very likely because earlier in chapter 11, it says Sarai was barren. She had no child. How old was she when she had uh, their child? Remember? She was 90. She left uh, with Abram when he was 75. Do you remember how old he was, how much older he was than her? 10 years. Somebody's got that right on. So he's 75. She's 65 when they leave. They go down. Then they go to Egypt, and he's worried that she looks so beautiful. They're going to want her when she's probably 65, 70, 75, whatever. A very interesting situation, but no children. Can't have kids um, for whatever reason. Well, God saw to that because he wanted them to be able to have a child in faith of him, of God, not of, you know, just natural uh, fertility, we'll say. So I will make you a great nation. Even though you don't have any children, you know, you'll look up to the stars and see the number of those. You'll look at the sands of the shore and you'll, you'll have offspring like that. Now that's a lot of offspring, isn't it? I suppose... Uh, if you think of the stars now, you think, oh, there's so many stars, billions of stars. Well, um, Abram couldn't see all the stars that we can see with the help of you know, machines, you know, uh, telescopes and things, but uh, it's still a huge number, a huge number. In addition, by the way, to Abram's descendants through Isaac, he had a large number of descendants through Ishmael and a uh, large number of descendants through another wife, Keturah, after Sarai died. And so he's going to be, have a great nation. I think great here means a so, in size, but it's also true that the nation of Israel will be great in terms of importance. Importance. You know, why, why, does, why does Israel get so much airtime today in the news, even though it's just a t- tiny sliver of land on the whole globe? Everybody's 
Everybody's all upset about Israel. Why? Why is that? Well, there's something special about the nation. Secondly, God says, I will bless you. I will bless you. Abram would receive personal blessings, both spiritually and physically. He was wealthy. He was associated with God in a personal relationship with God. He was a friend of God. Remember that? And so he received those. He had many servants, a large household he was in charge of, and, and all of that. Can you imagine if God came to you and said, I will bless you more than he has already? Do you stop and think about that? God has blessed you. He has blessed you. He didn't have to say it in an audible voice from heaven to you, but he's blessed you materially, most of you here. He's blessed you physically. He's blessed you spiritually. He's actually blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has set you as as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. You're awaiting for Christ to return and actually inaugurate and actuate his rule over the earth so that you can be in your home kingdom. You're not there now. I wrote something on my blog this week related to that. I encourage you to look that up and read it. Um, But we are citizens of another place. And if you feel out of place on this earth, actually that's good. There's a reason if you're a Christian, you feel out of place because you are out of place. You're visiting. You're, uh, you're in a place that's going to change dramatically when the Lord Jesus returns, and it will, be more, it will feel more homey than your home feels now. God says, I'm going to make your name great. Who, ha- who that has any education, I'll say today, doesn't know about Abraham. Not that they know all of the history and everything about him, but who has not heard of Abraham? Um, there's stories of... of uh, what's, the, what's the fellow who's a famous movie director? Uh, Lucas. I think his name is George Lucas. Am I right about that? Uh, he was... Uh, I heard a story about him visiting somewhere in a a person was sitting next to him having a meal together and didn't know who he was. Like, had no idea. You know, I mean, not like I would personally recognize him, but if I found out, oh, you know, hi, George, like, whoa, okay, this is a fellow that probably tons and tons of people in the world know. He has a great name in the world, a famous name. Um, So for somebody to say, you know, you say Abraham, and they say, who's that? I mean, what's worse is when you go to the campus, brother, and you talk to people about Jesus, and they don't know who you're talking about. What ignorance is that? Sad. Sad ignorance. It's culpable ignorance, too, and it's actually, in some ways, frustrating ignorance that people don't know the most important person who ever lived on the face of the planet. So... Going to make your name great. You're going to have renown and fame. Of course, Jews, Muslims, and Christians respect him today, don't they? Yes. Number four, the Bible says, you will be a blessing. Some of the blessings that Abraham receives will be transmitted to others around him. And this is a consequence of God's promise to multiply his descendants, to bless him personally. Uh, to make him famous, and now how this works out practically is shown in the next three statements. So this is kind of like a hinge. I'm going to bless you, make your name great, many offspring, but now you shall be a blessing to other people. Number five, I will bless those who bless you. This is to say that those who treat Abram well will be blessed. So the, one of the early instances of kind of example of this is when he went to, to Egypt. And despite his lack of faith in God, God still protected Abraham from the Pharaoh and that huge government there, that, that power that he had. Uh, this, I think, relates to Abraham personally, but corporate solidarity is an important concept. Okay, so I will bless those who bless you. 
This extends beyond Abram's personal existence. And this trickled down to following generations. You with me? You and your descendants. I mean, how can it be that, let me say it this way. If God promised to bless Abram and somebody touched Abram's son, Isaac, that's not very good toward Abram, is it? No, you mess with my son, you mess with me. And so it has to flow down through the generations. And there's a corporate solidarity there. Then also on the flip side, I will curse those who curse you, treating Abram lightly, disrespecting him. Those who do that will not receive blessings from God. In fact, they will be cursed themselves. And this has a similar trickle-down effect to later generations. Now, many times people say, well, does that mean we give... You know, today, the U.S. gives Israel carte blanche just to do whatever. I'll answer that in just a moment. Before I do that, though, I want to say this in the seventh promise, and it says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The spiritual aspect of the blessing upon Abraham comes here. If we look later in our Bibles, and I encourage you to do this in Acts chapter 3 and verse number 25, in one of the early church sermons, Acts 3.25, they understood this, I think, much better than we do today. Acts 3.25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning every one of you away from your iniquities. It's the blessing of God to turn you away from your sins. To go further into sin or continue in sin is not an evidence of the blessing of God. It's an evidence of the curse of man. And so he sent Jesus first to the Jews to turn them away from their iniquities, but he did so also to bless all the families of the earth. Let's look at Galatians 3.8 in addition to the Acts passage. In Galatians 3.8, it says this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, that is the same faith that Abraham has, are blessed with believing Abraham. God promised through the seed of Abraham to bless the world. And that seed is Christ. That's what the scripture teaches, my friends. So this is actually like the proto-gospel, the proto-evangelium in uh, chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, is an early promise of the gospel to the nations. As salvation comes through the Jewish people to the world through the seed of Abraham. Now, Hebrews tells us that but by the way, I, don't, I think maybe I skipped over this in my notes. Um, when, when Abram went to Pharaoh, when he went to Egypt, he, he, he lied about his sister, didn't he? Well, there's some technicality where she's a half-sister kind of thing or something, but uh, that was incomplete information. They were married. They were spouses. What, what did Abraham do there? He demonstrated a lack of faith in God. A lack of faith in God. He lied to protect himself. He did not trust God to protect himself. See that? So there was a failure of his faith, and I encourage you likewise to not have a failure of faith. Even when there's a dangerous situation and you feel like, well, I can make this easier if I just lie, deceive, uh, shade the truth, don't say anything. You know, it'll go away if I just kind of keep silent and don't let everybody know what's going on. And so Genesis gives us this very clear explanation about his wrongdoing 
and just doesn't sugarcoat it, just says it like it is. Um, so back to the promises. God gives these promises. There's no condition on the ultimate fulfillment, but disobedience can delay from a human perspective the fulfillment of a unilateral covenant. It can put certain of its provisions out of reach at a time, uh, one specific time or another, according to the pleasure of God. So that's why I say there's sort of conditions, but not in the sense that the covenant will ever be thrown out. God said, the only way that the nation of Israel is going to cease to exist is what? If you cause the covenant of the day and the night to cease, if the sun and the moon stop doing their thing, then the nation of Israel will be set aside. But that's obviously not going to happen. Um, and this is the situation, by the way, that Israel finds itself in today. Many of the people there are in a hardened state of unbelief. So they can't say, look, you know, we're Abraham's people and we get all the blessings. No, you're Abraham's people, but you don't share the faith of Abraham. That's the problem. Uh, so you can't expect God to bless in unbelief. God blessed Abraham with temporal blessings in part because he was a believer. When he stepped out of bounds, however, for instance, with Pharaoh or another instance, Hagar, then problems ensued and the blessings became obscured by consequences of sin. Now, as far as our church understanding of this, our doctrinal understanding of the nation of Israel, we have to remember we are not allowed to take the blessings promised to Israel and take them to ourselves. Oftentimes it's said like this. People take, they want to take the blessings of the old covenant, apply it to the church, and leave the curses with Israel. Now, if you're going to take the blessings, you've got to take the curses as well. But if we properly understand the scriptures, we don't grab the blessings of Israel and claim them as the church's property. Um, so we see now just a couple other things before we close. Abram travels to, to Canaan. He obeyed God, took his family with his nephew Lot to Canaan. He stopped uh, at Shechem, stopped at Bethel. Um, God promised the land again to him in, uh, in verse number 7, to your descendants I will give this land. And now he could see with his own eyes what the land was like. Then he went down to Egypt, uh, and there was a problem. A famine drove him down there for food, as it happened two generations later uh, regarding Joseph. Uh, or three generations, honey, how, how you count it. And so we see the whole Sarai situation. I'm going to let you look at the chronology there. It's a little bit of a kind of a detail that doesn't really change the meaning of the story at all. The question there has to do with when exactly did Abram leave Haran? When he was 75, it's, it's clear the text is that he left then, but how old was he? Uh, when, or how old rather was Terah when he left? Was Terah 145 years old or was Terah dead? It seems like they stayed in, in Haran until the father passed away and then Abram kept moving. But that would make Terah 130 years old when he had Abram, which is not a problem for that age, that era. But the text said in chapter 11 that uh, Terah had Abram when he was 70, or, it's, or it says he had, actually says he had all three of his boys when he was 70. Obviously, they weren't probably triplets, so he didn't have all of them at that age. So perhaps Abram was born later, uh, but just listed there when, when Terah began to have children in his uh, 70th year. So I'll let you read the details about that. That's a little bit uh, of an interesting kind of thing. Let me conclude this way. Uh, this is quite a history lesson here, which sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. It helps us understand where the Jews came from. Uh, it gives us an early promise of the gospel. Again, always go back to that. Uh, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. You as Gentiles, most of you here, are blessed because God blessed Abraham. Our salvation comes through the tree of Abraham. Reminds us also to obey what God tells us to do, even if it takes a long time to do so. And also, I think it does this, 
reminds us to obey God when the stakes are high and when it seems dangerous to do so. Both examples in this chapter point us in that kind of application direction. First of all, you know, you move across the desert to the other side a thousand miles away or whatever it was, you know, you might say, well, that's kind of dangerous. That's a lot of work. But faith will cause you to do that, faith in God. And then the famine comes and you're faced with the option of having to go down to Egypt to get food and what's going to happen with me and my wife. And so, well, instead of faith, what did Abraham do? He lied because he said, this is a dangerous situation, so I'm going to get out of the danger by lying. No, you get out of the danger by believing. Get out of the danger by believing in God. Trust him enough to persevere in obedience, even if it seems dangerous. If it seems dangerous to to come out to meet with the church family, either now or in China somewhere, here or there, or whether it seems dangerous to be going out and witnessing the gospel, or... um, you know, because of persecution that's arising or it seems dangerous to be promoting God's word when censorship is on the rise, forget all of that. Do what God has told you to do and do it in faith and don't be lying and don't be skirting the truth and figuring out all these machinations and everything. Just obey God and his word and it will be much easier for you. It will be much better for you. It will be much more pleasing to God for you if you'll do that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we've had to be in the Word, spend a few minutes thinking about the life of Abram and Lot and all of those associated with them. Help us to be people of faith, people who share the faith of Abram. And although we may from time to time, as he did, fail, help us to repent, come back to our senses, so to speak, and walk properly with you. May you bless your people as you blessed Abram in this portion. In Jesus' name, amen.